Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we have Lachlan. Hello. Lauren. Hello. And Justin. This week on The Grange Point, we discuss Indigenous cultures and what we can actually learn from them from their custodianship of the land for thousands of years, particularly with reference to Australia's Indigenous people and the scientific work that they've been doing for over 40,000 years. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. Whether it be the Anu in Hokkaido, the Baju in Borneo, the First Nations of Canada, the Native American tribes in North America, there are Indigenous people across the world, and they will face numerous and complex challenges. For example, this podcast is recorded on the land traditionally owned by the Wurundjeri Bullock people, which are part of the Kulin Nation Alliance in Australia, one of the um, Indigenous Peoples First Nations of Australia. And there's a lot we can actually learn from Indigenous cultures because they've often been overlooked by colonising forces and peoples because we in Western society tend to ignore some of the amazing insights that they have into how our world works and the science behind everyday life. If you live in a place for over 40,000 years, you tend to get a pretty good idea about the nature, the environment, the climate, geological events, and a number of other things that would have happened. But we're going to shed a bit of light on some of the insights we can actually gain by listening to and understanding the stories of Indigenous peoples, and how it can help us actually appreciate some of their scientific insights. So Justin, when you think of astronomy, the study of the stars and the planets in space, normally you think of someone in a white lab coat um, with a telescope and heaps of computers and stuff like that, right? Generally, yes. Uh, Or someone at the very tops of a mountain trying desperately to get everyone to turn off their lights so they can actually look at the stars without light pollution. But we don't consider the fact that there have been people studying the stars and the planets for thousands and thousands of years, even before we had to worry about stuff like light pollution. And that's right. If you imagine you're one of the Laritja people, which is um, an indigenous tribe in Australia, 4,700 years ago, you're looking up at the sky, and you see a meteor falling down. Now, you don't have access to telescopes, or computers, or um, any of that physical way to record information. How do you tell people it happened? Well, that, that's right. I mean, I, and I don't even know what it is. It, it might happen so fast that I just see this massive thing taking up all of the sky and travelling down. I can record observations about it. I know when it happened. I can see it. But my language to describe it, it's really got to be, well, there's a, there's a giant thing in the sky full of fire and it was crazy, like the whole thing. And then there's this massive shockwave and explosion. And that thing can be passed down um, through generations, um, through spoken history and stuff like that. And it can also be mythologised. And so... What Western scientists um, are starting to do is actually to sit down and listen to the experiences and the stories of these indigenous people um, and see, well, what actually happened here? Um, Do these stories actually show empirical scientific occurrences that can be measured and recorded? That's right. And in the case of the Laritja people, they tell a story about how they saw a fire devil descending down from the sun, crashing into earth and killing everything in the vicinity. I might look at that and go, hang on, that sounds almost exactly like an asteroid hitting a, hitting a planet. Like that, that's, that's pretty much the, 
the best way to I could possibly describe it <laughs> without knowing what an asteroid is. So having heard of this legend and having a bit of understanding of it, a researcher from the University of New South Wales, an astrophysicist by the name of Duane Harmaker, actually said, well, is there an actual place that's nearby to this that we can associate with this potential cosmic event? And there is. There is actually a Henbury Meteorite Conservation Reserve, which is, was discovered with the help of the richer people by Western society in 1930, um, which is a location in Central Australia. And if you go there, you can actually see the craters caused by this, this thing that is, that is recorded in the myths of the richer people. They talk, and what they describe, this fire devil descending to Earth and raining down all these fireballs on the planet, you can actually go to the location and see, yeah, okay, there's the craters. And that, that was a, that's one example of how a legend from the indigenous peoples actually contains valuable scientific record for us to go and investigate. But there are others. This astrophysicist from UNSW, um, Dwayne Hamaka, he's like, oh, okay, well, we've seen that there's this example of um, indigenous peoples recording um, real measurable scientific phenomena. Maybe if we look into the mythology and the history um, in some other areas, maybe we can find some more stuff. So he grabbed his friend James Goff, who was a tsunami expert, also from UNSW, um, and they decided to visit members of the Gunditjmara people. And they have a story where they describe this gigantic wave coming very far inland and basically killing everybody um, except those who were up in the mountains. And they actually name all the locations where people survived. That's, that's phenomenal. So this, 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 this story actually records a historical event. And it says with great detail, all right, well, these places here, 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 and here, they were safe from this massive tsunami event. So from a, from a historical record perspective, that's a wealth, a treasure trove of data. And we needed to validate it. And what's amazing is that not only is this um, such a powerful um, historical source, but they actually found primary evidence to back it up. So they took core samples almost a kilometre from the ocean, um, so a, a kilometre inland, and at each spot they found a layer of ocean sediment about two metres down, which suggests that a tsunami probably did wash over the area um, hundreds to thousands of years ago. The, the years are a bit blurry. And that's a great example of how you can actually capture scientific events and get primary evidence to back up and validate the stories that these people have been keeping for many years. And then we can actually get a really good insight into what's actually happened in our country. Because as custodians of the land for 40,000 years, they've got the best knowledge out of everyone on what actually happened here. And uh, earlier this year, in a similar vein, further researchers have actually started trying to observe whether or not we can actually learn from the indigenous communities an understanding of how sea levels may have risen and changed over the last seven to 11,000 years. For example, um, Australia and Tas mainland Australia and Tasmania, our island to the south, were joined for a long period of time. And it was only very recently, in fact, where, where the land bridge that connected the two of them was covered by the ocean and Bass Strait evolved. And when I say very recently, I mean in the geological sense of at least last 10, 10 to 15,000 years ago. But the indigenous peoples have been there for that long, so they actually would have records of what actually happened there through their stories that they have captured. So we can actually learn from them, then find primary evidence to validate what was actually going on with our sea levels and thus the geology of Australia over 11,000 years ago. That also has some interesting ramifications um, on short-term climate change and stuff like that and looking at anthropogenic um, sources of climate change and stuff like that.
my question for you, Justin, is that um, if this culture has been around for almost 40, like at least forty thousand years, how does this information get preserved for so long? No, like, I mean, if you think about it, like I can't, I can barely tell something to you, then you tell it to Lauren, and without it changing at least once along the way. I do like telling stories, though. That's true. Like, I'm not that trustworthy. But in, in, in general, like, 40,000 years... Like, can you imagine any of our data storage systems lasting for 40,000 years? That's, you're right. Like, you know, if I stored things back on um, tape drives 30 years ago, 20 years ago, as a good long-term store of data, or even maybe CDs 10 years ago, they're not necessarily going to be around... Dude, even... <laughs> for, Stone... for, for 30 years later... For them to be able to be read, I would I would challenge you to find a tape player easily available, let alone a digital tape reader, which is what you actually need to convert data files that were stored on tape. I'm not even going to get into floppy disks or things that predate that. So to have something that captured and stored information for forty thousand years, you've got to rely on the best method there is out there, and that is wetware, physical human brains. They can capture and store information and pass it along. And that's what indigenous communities have been doing for 40,000 years, 50,000 years in Australia. And they can capture these stories. And it's, it's believed that because of the isolation of Australia in these communities and the largeness and the expanse of Australia, which made limited interaction with outside forces amongst, aside from their own nation and alliances, um, it helped keep the story free from any contamination or influence from other sources. But they also actually have something that's relatively unique, as at least from other studies um, which, or other cultures, where they actually have a fact-checking system built into the stories to make sure that the stories are kept the same. So they, they have almost like peer review from each generation where they make sure that the children, the parents and the elders all are telling consistently the same story and that no one person is introducing their own flair or own detail. Someone's not rebooting the story and making it darker and edgier with new characters and completely changed motivations. They're keeping it consistent for 40,000 years. And from that, get some tremendous insights. I wish Marvel did that. (laughs) So there's a lot we can learn from actually listening to the Indigenous peoples of Australia and actually finding out from them what has happened to our country. Because they are, truly, the people who know the most about it. And that can help us really then understand in a scientific way, using our new scientific methods, some stuff that they've known for a very, very long time. So, you guys are huge nerds. Yes. Um... And nerds often like to use fiction and stories um, as ways to see how we want to live our lives and stuff like that. They can have lessons and guides and messages um, that we can take with us in our day-to-day lives. What I think is really cool um, is that the Indigenous like people like, of all cultures, but especially Indigenous Australians, they've been doing this for thousands and thousands of years uh, because they've used the stars, the stories in the sky to help guide, like, decisions, like, capture knowledge, even find strategies to find food or, or know when to travel um, or to know when the climate is changing. In There are a lot of different cases where um, Indigenous astronomical knowledge um, has been used to predict these things, and through the stories they've told about the stars, um, you can actually extrapolate um, real scientific occurrences that are measurable and empirical. So what they're actually doing is that they're finding 
a correlation between two factors. They're saying when stars are in this position or this is happening, there is a correlating effect in nature or in our climate or in the, in the clouds or with these animals that happens at the same time. And actually, that, that's, that's what we do when we, when we study animals and when we study things. We look for a source that ties things together and a theory that explains it. And these theories, they're still valid. They're, they're, not, they're not saying that the stars are causing it. They're saying when this is in this right position, that is the time that is associated with this. And instead of measuring in this season these things happen, they're just doing it in another way. It's the same base content they're getting across. It's just, it's really cool that um, instead of having this in a dry way, because they had very little way of physical recording of data, they've actually put this data into stories. Um, so, for example, um, the evening appearance of the celestial, uh, the celestial shark, Bidem, which is traced out by the stars of the Big Dipper in Ursa Major, it actually tells Torres Strait Islanders that they need to plant their gardens with sugarcane, sweet potato, and banana. So there's a myth associated with that. Bottom's one of the mythical figures for those people. And okay. And its presence in the sky and its movement actually tells them how to do that. So, so the appearance they, of the celestial figure basically signifies that it's safe to plant these things. Yeah. Basically almost looking after them, in that sense. Yeah. Right, so the shark's sort of... When it appears, it says, now is the time you can plant these things, you're going to eat a lot of food, and you're going to have a good time. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the Torres Strait Islanders, when Biden touches the horizon, this celestial star makes its way across just after sunset, the shark breeding season has begun, right? So that means when, when after sunset, the shark's nose is on the horizon, it means the sharks are breeding. So don't go into the ocean. <laughs> like, that's... As a way of capturing the information in the storytelling, That's it's taking their figure of Biden from their culture and their stories and saying, here it is in the sky. Now we're going to associate with that position of it that you can all see and understand the language that we speak and point to and say, look here, when this is in this, this position, it's time to plant the crops. When it's in this position, sharks are breeding. So just, just be wary. It's a great way of coding that information. They did the same thing. Um, a different group did the same thing for another set of stars, which also signaled the fact that winter was starting and that dingoes would start breeding. So a lot of it was to do with um, not just like harvesting and stuff, but also threats and when to avoid them and when was like the best time to do different types of stuff. One of the really interesting examples, again, from the Torres Strait Island community, because they are an island community, they need to worry about navigation and weather and storms, much less so than, say, some of the indigenous people from inside central Australia. They don't need to worry about storms and rain that much. So what they did note, the Torres Strait Islanders, is that they used stellar scintillation, which... Is that, is that the twinkling of the stars? Yes, basically. And, and they knew that the stars were twinkling and the planets were something else because the planets, they didn't twinkle, but the stars did. And what they used, they used the comparison between those and the amount that the stars were twinkling to help them figure out how much moisture and how much turbulence is in the air to then let them understand when storms were coming, weather patterns were coming, or seasons changing. That's amazing. That's just like, that's such a good example of the fact that these indigenous cultures have had understanding about, understandings about the, the world and how the world and our climate works, um, that Western science has only just begun to catch up to with really advanced equipment and stuff like that. Well, that's that. right. What they're actually doing qualitatively there through observing the stars is what we try and measure with barometers and moisture reading and things like that, where we actually measure the, the same parameters using a scientific apparatus. They were doing the same measurements and recording in their own valid way. Now, sailors across the world, particularly the Polynesian peoples and many other sailors, used a similar method, 
by all means, they're not the only people who have done that. But it's an example of how you can actually capture and perform detailed analysis even when you don't have fancy modern equipment. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. This week we talked about what we can learn from the scientific works of the Indigenous cultures of many of our lands, such as the Indigenous Australian people, and what they've learnt about our environments, our geological history, and even our climate. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.